reading from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The birth of Jesus. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem. The town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. daughter was born I did nine months to get used to the idea that we were having a baby but it was still a surprise which sounds ridiculous for nine months I'd seen the scans I felt the bump kick I'd sang and, and read to the baby inside my wife's tummy but when she appeared into the world in the hospital it was still a shock. It was, it was a surprise that this real human person had come into the world. And one of the things I remember most with the first few days of her being born was that actually she was a, a stranger. I didn't, I didn't know her. I, I, I didn't know her personality. I, uh, we, had, we had just met. And it was a re that was a really odd feeling. This was the, this was my child, but I didn't know her. I think I almost felt the opposite. I kept looking at him and thinking like, oh, I think I remember you. Like, I think I, because when I was pregnant, I didn't really feel like it was a baby. Like I didn't, and people would say like, oh, what are you excited about? And I would think like, I'm not, I, I just want this baby. I'm not excited to like do anything with him. And I felt like maybe I had missed something. And then when he was born, I felt like, I did know him, and then I realised that like I didn't want him to be doing anything, or like I didn't need to have plans with him. It was just kind of enough that he was here. But no, I don't know if that's different between women and men. But no, I felt like I did know him. So we were at the hospital for 12, 14 hours, you know, waiting, 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 and because. I didn't have a baby in my belly. I didn't feel these kicks. I didn't feel these sensations, you know. So for me, it was very much a, a head thing. Oh, yeah, we're having a baby. But you don't really realize it until the baby's there. 
And then, so we're there for hours and hours, and then all of a sudden, there's a little baby in the room with us, who's ours, that we have to take care of all of a sudden. And it's like, it's a bit of a surprise, <laughs> but... Um, and I think those yeah. those feelings lasted actually probably the first two months of like you suddenly have this moment of clarity where you're like there's a baby here and he's mine and like <laughs> where did he come from and how did he get here and you know all these questions of we're responsible for him for a long time like yeah. <laughs> you just sort of wonder like how did I get to this point in my life <laughs> the photograph that I based this painting on was taken by my friend Chris Hoskins I suppose you could say it's very much um, a father's perspective. The picture Chris took really chimes in with my memories of our children being born and, uh, and, and has something of that shock and surprise that, that I felt uh, meeting our, our, our kids for the first time. The interesting thing I found when I was painting it, quite a number of mums came up to me and, and said to me, that's the bit I didn't get to see. It's quite a, quite a special and unique moment to capture. The whole experience, I think even just for the two of us before he was born, was really being there together and going through something like that together was, yeah. I was really surprised actually at how well Jeff coped because I thought, like, he doesn't like blood, he doesn't like, you know, these high-stress situations and things like that, but he was, like, so calm all the way through it, and, like, actually, I felt really calm because of that, and so, yeah. I think for us as a couple, it was, like, we learned a lot about each other, in a good way. <laughs> and you hear all these horror stories, that's all you ever hear, and it's like, we didn't experience any of yeah. you know. I don't know whether people are lying or they just like to tell their most difficult stories to round you up, but we had a great time <laughs> in comparison. <laughs> We've had a really nice day beforehand. We've just gone for lunch and for a walk in Botanic Gardens and cooked some dinner and then gone to church. And then at the end of church, we realised that my water's is broken and we should probably go to hospital. <laughs> well, at the beginning, when it was, we just knew that we had to go to hospital, but I hadn't had any contractions, then we thought, well, we should go and see a doctor and find out what's going on. And then I was having contractions before we got to the hospital, but once we were there, they were so calm that I just thought, well, like, if they're calm and Jonathan's calm, then everyone would look more alarmed if something was going wrong, so it must all be fine. So it all stayed quite relaxed. He was five pounds six. Um, he was born and they just gave him to me and they didn't do anything for about half an hour, 45 minutes, so they must have been quite happy just to look at him, that he was, you know, his lungs were obviously working and, yeah, his breathing sounded... I, I don't know what they looked at and were happy to leave him with us, but that was nice. But, yeah, he wasn't rushed away to be checked. You know, all of a sudden he's there and there's this little purple, wrinkly, <laughs> screaming, you know funny looking raisin of a, of a baby, you know, and I never thought I'd feel that way about a baby, you know, um, and it's still that way, he wakes you up in the middle of the night and you're tired and you're groggy and you don't want to be up, but then he smiles at you and it, it's like, okay, it's alright, I'm okay to be awake right now, you know. Both of us are fairly clueless about what you do with a baby. Like, should he nap now? Should he not nap now? Like, oh, he's been asleep a long time. Should we wake him up? You know, and just trying to figure it out together. And then 
yeah, getting advice from everyone around you and trying to weigh it and say, okay, that works for them. Do we want to try it? Or, you know, how does that work for us? And yeah, there's been lots of figuring things out for sure. I didn't really like realize how much you would just feel like you were just kind of getting from one morning to the evening without like any plans of achieving anything. That, that really quickly went out the window. It's just kind of like, oh, we'll just have made sure that he's fed and is comfortable and that we're comfortable. And that was like, oh, we achieved for days and days and thought, oh, that's fine. <laughs> Nothing else was expected of us. So that was nice. It was just a different life. We've had to have a lot of conversations about how are we going to do this? Um, what's what's going to work for us? What's going to work for you? What's going to work for me? So that there's the least amount of stress possible. Um, because there's nothing worse than being high strung and then having to take care of a baby as well. So we're trying to be as calm and as peaceful as possible by um, delegating certain responsibilities. So I always give him a bath. Nicole changes most of his diapers, you know. Um, I'll do the dishes and I'll make dinner um, and she'll rock him to sleep. So we've, we've had to figure out what works and what doesn't work so that it's easier on all three of us. When I think about Jesus being born, it's always funny at Christmas hearing songs like Away in a Manger and seeing the Christmas cards with this perfect looking baby. Words like Little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes does make me chuckle because that's really not my experience of children being born at all. But actually, I also think there's something in there that uh, it kind of denies the incarnation. It denies the idea that Jesus was a real person coming into the world who cried, who bled. When I think about Jesus being born, in the same way that I had to get to know my daughter at first. Jesus was a, a stranger coming into this world and someone that we need to take some time to get to know. I remember seeing it before I was born and being like, wow, that's really cool. And that's like a really precious moment that someone would be willing to share such like an intimate picture. And now that he's born, you just see it. It's just like that. Oh, yeah. Like, I remember that feeling of just that moment of like, that's my baby that I've known about for months and have felt and have talked to. And, and suddenly he's here and it like brings out all these just, yeah, emotions of remembering those first moments of holding him and just being like, wow, he's really real. I think now that I've had a baby, the fact that the baby takes up almost the whole photo, the whole painting makes sense, that it's just bigger than anything else happening in the room. Um, and I think there's also, even though you're looking at the baby, it must, I think it shows something of what it must feel like to be this baby in this kind of dark emergence into life. Thank you, Ross. Good work. Well done. Thank you. Shall we just say thank you to Ross for his work and putting the film together? I, I, would, I would credit Stephen, the guitarist, today, but uh, Stephen's one of our 
worship band. Beautiful guitar playing. Ian's going to come and join me and we'll have a little chat. I forgot to bring the other microphone, so we're just going to have to share this one. Sharing is caring. Sharing is indeed. So, quite a startling image uh, and, and not, not your average Christmas card, although we have turned it into a Christmas card. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and the, the, at the back uh, there, um, it, it's, you know, like I said on the, on the video, uh, it, it really does make, make me laugh to see all, all these very perfected uh, little babies. And, you know, I, I, there's, there's a number of folks that I, I don't know here today, but I, I'm guessing there's, there's a mixture of folks that, uh, that, are, that are parents and, and lots of people that aren't as well. Although, funnily enough, everyone was once upon a time a baby like this, just arriving into the, the world. Um, but yeah, I, for me, there's, there's something uh, about an, an image like that, that that speaks to me about, well, do you know, this is, this is really what it's like, a, a, a real person emerging into the world. And we, we think a lot about light during Advent. And, you know, I, th- I think primarily we have, uh, we celebrate Jesus' birth in the middle of winter because we, we, it's nice to put on lights when it's dark. Um, but that sense of uh, light coming into the darkness is something that I've tried to get in the painting as well. And there's all sorts of different ways of interpreting it. I think the thing that I love the most about the painting is, is the hands up here uh, covering the eyes. I, it's a reaction to a baby coming out of darkness into startling light. Um, but I also have a, a real sense of, you know, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, Father, take this cup away from me, <laughs> but not what I will, what, what you will. And, and I have this sense looking at the painting of, and obviously a newborn is completely incapable, well, actually, they're not even capable of seeing very far, never mind beholding the world. But nonetheless, there's just that sense of, oh, wow, this is, this is the world. This is not the world I made. <laughs> you know, it's not that God doesn't know the world. That's why he came. But just that sense of coming into this, coming right into this uh, with all of its uh, noise and imperfection and threat and so on. So, I don't know, that, that's kind of, in a sense, how I respond, just that sense of Jesus really engaging, <laughs> uh, and it's, it's a symbol rather than an actual reality, but really engaging with the world that he's come into. But I, maybe, I don't know, how does it strike you? T- tell us about how you even got the photograph, actually. I've just asked you a question, just asked another one. So we'll go to the first one. How, how, did, how does it engage with you? Um, I think one of, one of the most important things for me about it is, is that sense that uh, Jesus is not immune to being a human being. Uh, I, there's, there's a lot of um, interpretations of, of Jesus I've seen where, where, where Jesus doesn't seem fully human uh, and, and doesn't seem to have emotions or, or wouldn't be upset, but that's not the Jesus that we read about in the Bible. Uh, someone who uh, cried, someone who got upset, someone who got angry. Um, so th- the sense of uh, Jesus really feeling, I, I wanted to, to get across. Now, I've forgotten your second question. Um, I'll come back to the second question in a minute. 
Um, it's even just a, it's an obvious thought, but it's an interesting thought to reflect on the fact that Jesus had an umbilical cord, <laughs> you know, just those kinds of realities. My other question was, where did the, the painting come from? I mean, where did the picture from which you painted? Um, so, a friend of mine, um, Chris Hoskins, uh, who's a photographer, um, you might have seen some of his work in here uh, at one point. Tear Fund had uh, an exhibition of his photographs. I think it was from, uh, was it photographs from Malawi? Um, and so we, we had a little exhibition of photographs that Chris had taken. He'd, he'd been asked to go out on a, uh, a trip uh, with, uh, with Tear Fund. He's, he's been on, uh, on, on a couple with them. Um, but he, and he does a lot of, as, as well as that sort of humanitarian aspect of photography, he, he does a lot of landscapes and things. But um, this, the, the picture was um, of their second son. This is, this is a, a painting of Eli Hoskins. And uh, the, their first uh, child, uh, when, when he was born, it was an emergency C-section. And it was all quite dramatic and traumatic. Um, so they wanted to do as many things as possible to make the planned C-section that they were going to have as positive an experience as, as possible. And uh, they got permission from the hospital to, for Chris to bring in his photography equipment. And uh, it was really interesting for the staff afterwards. Um, Chris shared one image online, which is what this painting was uh, based on. But there was a whole photo shoot. And the staff were just fascinated afterwards to look back at their work. Because they never get to stop and reflect. Because everything's go, go, go. Um, so that, that was quite a special thing for, for them as well. Um, stopping and reflecting... Um it's probably a good, a good, a good comment. I was just interested in in Nula, who was in the the film there, talking about the fact that it was, it seemed right to her that the painting of the baby fills up the entire canvas, because a newborn baby fills up your entire life <laughs> in ways you'd never thought of, and suddenly you discover that. Yeah, it's an achievement if you got dressed that day. Uh, <laughs> it's an achievement just to make it through the day. Uh, and, and we do have this sanitized image. Well, we have so little information about the birth of Jesus. Uh, and so it's, I'm grateful to you, actually, just for uh, rubbing our faces in, if you like, the, the reality of, of Jesus' birth that takes us away from carols and sentiment and uh, Advent calendars and so on and says, no, this was real. This was real. Um, I, I, I was out at Easter House a little while ago um, and uh, preparing to do a messy church Christmas with them and, and just going over the Christmas story. And I was kind of debunking, uh, in a sense, the stable and the, main, uh, the stable and the cave and all the other things which we've tradition has added in. Uh, you know, and, and their jaws were kind of dropping, you know, as their Christmas card <laughs> illusions <laughs> were, were displaced somewhat. Um, but what was really interesting to me was one of the people who'd been at that meeting, who's not a Christian, came back to the church the next day and said, can I get a Bible, please? Um, because I think for this person, it was the real, realization that actually this stuff is real. <laughs> it happened and that there's a reality to it. Uh, so, Thank you for um, painting such a, 
uh, a kind of honest, real, and direct, I suppose, painting. Um, and I don't know if, if you know, that was your stated intention at the beginning or just, you know, whether you saw that and thought, perfect. Oh, I, I was, uh, from the outset, desperate to find a, a, an image of a, a newborn baby that um, was more dramatic than usual. Uh, but I, I didn't know how I, I was going to get that because there was, there was no way on earth that I was going to be able to be in a delivery room when a baby was born. Uh, and I thought, how, how is this, this going to work? And I, I thought and thought, and, uh, but then Chris posted this photo online and I, I dropped him a line and, uh, and him and his wife were very happy for, the, um, for, the, for me to use it for a, a painting. Do you not have news about another piece of artwork that's coming, or another two pieces of artwork that are coming to the church soon? I do, in fact. Um, I don't know if, how many of you came in the back door, but you might have noticed there's a bit of building work going on in the pavement out the back this Thursday morning at 11 a.m. Uh, we are privileged to be playing host permanently to a sculpture by a Canadian sculptor, Timothy Schmaltz, I think is his name, um, called Homeless Jesus, which depicts a sleeping figure on a bench which is entirely covered over, but the feet are exposed and there are holes in the feet. Um, and this is a sculpture that the, the sculptor uh, has done and is placed in cities all around the world just to raise awareness of issues around homelessness. And so uh, a, a retired Roman Catholic priest, Father Willie Slavin, and Elspeth Glasgow of Glasgow Churches together have worked tirelessly to raise the money. We're just playing host. They've done all the hard work. And so on Thursday, the sculpture is being installed out the back, just at our back door there. Um, just as a reminder, we'll have a little dedication ceremony. So please, uh, if you usually come in and out the front door, go and have a look around the back next weekend, uh, and you will see Homeless Jesus. Uh, there's just enough space left on the bench that one person can sit next to the feet of Jesus. Um, so I'll be interested to see how people engage with that sculpture and, uh, and, and relate to it. And connected to that, Peter Housen, the Scottish Glasgow artist, uh, has done a painting called Homeless Jesus, which will be on display in here. Peter Housen is quite a well-known and celebrated Glasgow artist, and his painting Homeless Jesus uh, will be on display. We're, we're curating it. We're hosting it here from the 7th till the 24th. So in addition to Ian's work, we'll have a Peter Housen for the next three weeks or so, as from next Sunday, I think, or from Thursday. So thank you for reminding me of that because I'd forgotten. And thank you, Ian, for, uh, for this painting, yet another uh, beautiful painting and provocative one in, uh, in the series that you've been working on. Uh, I'm not going to ask you what's next. We'll just keep all that under wraps. Any last words? No. <laughs> just a word. Okay. So we're going to turn to God's Word. Uh, just now, and Lewis is going to come, one of our band members, and uh, it was Lewis's birthday yesterday. Happy birthday, Lewis. I know you hoped you'd get away with that, didn't you? Uh, but in your honor, it ha so happens that a birthday cake turned up today, so we're going to eat it and celebrate your birthday, uh, which was yesterday today. But Lewis is going to come and read uh, God's Word for us now, first of all, from Luke and then Philippians, but I'll let him tell you that. So the first reading is from from Luke chapter 2, 1 to 7. Um, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while 
Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And the second reading is from Philippians okay. <laughs> 2, 5 to 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Christ, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You may, of course, be wondering why on earth we're focusing on the birth of Jesus on the first Sunday in Advent. Tradition tells us that the first Sunday in Advent is meant to be about the second coming. The second Sunday in Advent is the Word of God. The third Sunday in Advent is John the Baptist, and the fourth Sunday in Advent is uh, the Virgin Mary. But I wanted to do it differently this time, not least because I've done it that way for about almost 30 years. <laughs> And there's always a challenge finding a different angle at Christmas because it's so well known uh, and it's such a short body of material in the Scriptures that focuses on the birth of Jesus. But actually, I want us to start with Jesus this time because always we go through Advent and there's this sense of build-up. There's this sense of build-up to the birth as though we don't know what's coming. <laughs> Surprise! It's a baby! It's a boy! We know we know it's a boy, and we know it's a baby, and we're here because we already know about that boy, that man, Jesus. And also, I wanted us to start with the baby because the baby, in a sense, is the beginning um, of Advent. Now, when I was at school, I wanted to do woodwork, but my parents wouldn't let me do woodwork. And in my school, it was a choice between doing woodwork or doing Latin. Uh, it's a bit of a stark choice. But they reckon if you had the brains to do Latin, you didn't get to do woodwork, which seemed quite harsh to me. I don't think that would happen nowadays, but that was the choice. So I had to do Latin. So I very seldom take advantage of the fact that I did six years of Latin and hated most of it. Um, but Advent is made up of two Latin words. Ad means to or towards, and vent comes from the verb venire, which means to come. So it means that something is coming towards, Okay. And so Advent is a time of, of approach, of drawing near, of moving towards something. Uh, and we typically tend to think of Advent as a time when we're moving towards the celebration of the birth of Jesus, His coming. And yes, that's exactly what we're doing. But actually, what are we doing in Glasgow in our lives, in the big picture story? We're not moving towards the coming of the birth of Jesus because that's already been, and we know that. So actually, we have Advent round the wrong way because we often start with the second coming. But what we are doing in our lives and in our journeys is moving towards the time 
when either we will go to be with Jesus or He will come as He's promised again to gather His people and take us to be with Him. And so the first coming points us and urges us to be aware of the second coming and to be ready and be prepared. Mary and Joseph had nine months to be prepared, but they knew not for what because the circumstances of the conception of Jesus were so uh, unusual that you would be uh, easily forgiven for imagining that they spent nine months wondering what this was going to be or be like. What would it mean to have the Son of God? What would this child be like that had appeared from nowhere in Mary's womb? And we have this moment which stands at the epicenter of human history. Now, maybe the people who are doing their Christmas shopping don't consider that the birth of Jesus is a moment at the epicenter of human history, but in the big picture story of God's dealings in the world as revealed to us in the Bible, the coming of Jesus is the epicentric moment, the moment right at the very heart of God's plans and purposes from creation through fall to redemption to the kingdom, and to God's reign with us, with His people. And so, we have this massive moment encapsulated in a tiny baby. I'd love to know the birth weight, but it doesn't really matter. Jesus was a tiny little baby, born probably in a simple peasant house. Sorry, not a cave, not a stable. I'll bang on about that next week. It's inconceivable that Joseph, who was sent to Bethlehem because it's the place that he came from in a world where extended family was everything, didn't have relatives in, jo- in, in Bethlehem. Of course, he had distant cousins and great uncles and great aunties and second cousins. And if you needed cheap bed nights somewhere, what would you do? Would you crash on a relative and claim kin or would you pay out of your hard-earned income? in a place that probably didn't have a slew of five-star hotels. So far more likely that they jammed in beside relatives and there was just no room. The word in is translated uh, as the word for a guest room or a spare room. Someone else bagged the spare room. And so they were forced to stay in with the family in one end of the dwelling that everybody shared, right next to where the animals were kept, right next to where the manger in that house was for the animals that lived there with the family. There you are. You don't need to come next Sunday. I've told you now. And so, in the midst of crush and crowd and smell and noise and chaos was this tiny little scrap who was the epicenter of human history, and nobody knew. They barely had an idea. Mary was treasuring things in her heart, but without much comprehension. Even when Jesus was an adult, she didn't get it for quite a wee while. She and Jesus' half-brothers, the children that Mary had had with Joseph, came to drag Jesus out of the house once, and they said he's out of his mind. She didn't understand his mission or what he was about. And so we have this massive moment at the center of human history, and yet unseen and unknown by people. And at the same time, as we heard with Jeff and Nicole and Nula, 
who shared something of their experiences of being new first-time parents. It was a moment that was deeply personal and transformational, a moment that was uh, a special turnaround moment in their life, as any uh, one who's had a, a baby come into their world will know. And the story of Jesus' birth and coming into the world finds parallels in the story of the spread of the gospel after Jesus was taken back up into heaven. What do I mean by that? Well, let me just give you a little bit of heads up of what we're going to do with Advent this year over the next few weeks. Because you see, the story of Jesus' coming was a story that in concentric circles went out from a tiny little baby in a manger. It started with Jesus at the very center. And then, of course, it went from there to the house and the neighborhood and the community of Bethlehem that a baby had been born. They would hear the crying. There would be uh, women all acting as community midwives. The men would have been kicked out. They would know there was a baby being born. And then the shepherds on the hillside, on the fringes of Bethlehem outside, and the wise men some distance away in probably in modern-day Iraq. And then, of course, the ends of the earth. When Jesus left and went back to heaven, He charged His disciples to wait for a gift. And He told them that when they received the gift, that they would be witnesses of Jesus. Where? in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see, Jesus must be at the center, and the good news ripples out from there, as it did at His birth, as it did when He left uh, to go back to heaven and send the Holy Spirit. God's unfolding salvation plan has Jesus at the center. It begins with creation, and then swiftly is followed by the fall. Captivity to sin and to death, to disease and to decay, to pain and to tears and to suffering. The curse of being the ones now to judge good from evil instead of walking by faith and by trust. We are now the arbiters of what is right and wrong, and what a mess we've made of that. And so God embarked on His rescue mission, longing to renew that and restore that relationship. And in the first chapters of Genesis, probably the most familiar story we find of God seeking to do that was the story of Noah. Let's try and start again. But time after time, it just failed. And the grip of sin and death was too entrenched. And so God set about a plan via one man. And so, the story of salvation is the story of God's plan, which began with Abraham and Sarah. One man leading through Isaac and Jacob to a whole family, Jacob's 12 sons, who ended up in Egypt. And they went to Egypt as a family, and it was while they were in Egypt that the nation of Israel was formed. They weren't a nation when they went to Egypt. The nation of Israel was birthed in Egypt. It's part of the reason why it's so significant that Matthew tells us 
that Jesus was called out of Egypt because God's people were called out of Egypt. That's where they began to be a people. Their beginning as a nation was in Egypt, and they were called out through the parting of a Red Sea, a 40-year journey through the wilderness, and entry into the promised land. And through all those years, they were charged to be a people who were a sign of God's presence to the other nations. And time after time, they, like you and I, failed to be and do that very thing. But a promise came, a promise that had echoed through Scripture from the moment of the fall itself, a promise that one would come who would crush the head of the serpent. One would come who would establish a kingdom, a descendant of David, who would establish the kingdom, and His kingdom would never end. Whispers and echoes of a promise of a Messiah all down through the pages of Scripture. Up until the point where this tiny scrap of life appeared, unnoticed except to those who were delighted to congratulate Mary and Joseph on the birth of their son, unaware of the seismic impact of the arrival of this baby. And so this baby grew up to be Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the new Adam. Jesus, the new Joshua, leading people into a different promised land. Jesus doing and undoing what had been done before. Jesus sending His apostles out. Jesus, before that, however, bearing the sins of the world on the cross and breaking the tyranny and reign of evil and death, rising from the dead and returning to heaven sending the Spirit and sending His people to the ends of the earth. You see, it begins with the birth. We don't just make our way to Christmas with a final ta-da on Christmas Day as though that explained it all. It all begins with Jesus. And if He's not at the center, He's in the wrong place. If He's not at the center of your life, then He's not in the place that He came to occupy. And one of the most beautiful and most powerful things that this image does for us is it points us to a God who is willing to come all the way to broken humanity, who is willing to come all the way to human infancy and vulnerability, who is willing to come all the way down to make himself subject to the care and trust and responsibility of Mary and Joseph, who is willing to make himself vulnerable to the very worst that humankind, who he had spoken into being, the Word made flesh, might do to him he humbled himself. He humbled himself. Jesus' birth was a moment in time. It happened in a place in the world 
It was a particular episode in history come to a specific family called and chosen by God who were willing in faith to accept and receive the trust and the responsibility of bearing Jesus to the world. I have a friend, Mary, who discovered a Greek word. I'm not too hot on Greek, but I remember her telling me about this word theotokos. Theotokos means God-bearer. It's a word that's used to describe Mary because she was a God-bearer. But you see, it's a word that is offered to any and every one of us. What does it mean to you to bear Jesus? Not in the way that Mary did, that's impossible. But what does it mean to you to know that Jesus entrusts Himself to all who in faith will receive Him? But you see, it requires of us what it required of Him, humility. It required of Jesus that willingness that we heard of in the reading from Philippians. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to His own advantage. No special pain-free delivery from Him, for Him. No escape from the vulnerabilities of childhood or babyhood. Deliberately choosing to place himself into a rough Palestinian household with scratchy straw, animals all around, and the potential for disease. Coming to peasant folks and growing up to touch lepers and give sight to the blind, and hang out with the worst of the worst, in order that in love He might reach them, and redeem them, and offer them salvation and forgiveness. But interestingly enough, the only ones who could see, the only ones who could receive, the only ones who could enter in, were the ones who humbled themselves as He had humbled Himself the ones who knew their need, (laughs) the ones who knew their brokenness, the ones who sensed the stench of pride in their own lives and knew they needed fixed. I'm very aware of the stench of pride in my life. And this painting and this story remind me of what Jesus was willing, nay, insisted on doing for my sake and for yours. How low would he go to get you, to find you, to pursue you? How much would he suffer and endure to clear your name before God, to buy your pardon with his blood, and to offer you forgiveness and a fresh page and a relationship with him and an invitation to call yourself and believe and know yourself to be a daughter, a son of the living God. How low did he go? (laughs) How low will you go to recognize that actually the only thing that matters is where you stand 
with respect to Jesus. Mary and Joseph, a very ordinary couple. Good lineage, but pretty ordinary. Shepherds, wise men, on the margins of society. You see, the ones who got it and who saw it were all the ones who, like that tax collector, stood at the back. <laughs> and in their hearts, if not with their lips, behaved and lived as those who said, Lord, have mercy on me, <laughs> sinner that I am. And so as we journey through Advent, as we consider the ripple effect of Jesus coming, as we look for Jesus coming again, as we seek to listen for his voice, we will hear it and we will know it. If we will allow him to hold up his mirror or to search us in the eyes and to ask the question that he asked Peter after his resurrection when three times he said, do you love me? Do you truly love me? We're going to break bread and share the cup in a moment. And perhaps it's quite appropriate because when we break bread and take a little sip of the cup, we take something very tiny <laughs> into our bodies. And yet something which, if received and seen with faith, that this represents what Jesus came into the world to do for you. Will you humble your body to receive? Yes, you can swallow bread and wine. But to do so with faith is to say to Jesus, may I be a new a theotokos, a God-bearer. Will you break me? Will you humble me? Will you show me where I am so full of me that there's no room left for you? Will you help me, Lord, to be a new somebody who is willing to climb down as you climbed down for my rescue and salvation? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we consider these powerful words from Philippians, we recognize how far you were willing to come to make yourself nothing, to take the nature not of a lord or master, a high priest or a general, but of a servant allowing yourself to be made in human likeness, humbling yourself to the most shameful and scandalous of deaths upon a cross, that you might rescue us, that you might bleed for us, that you might be broken and drink to the dregs the cup which was so difficult for you. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us all too readily 
We take what you've given. And yet we do not walk as you walked. Respond as you responded. Lord, break and humble us anew. That as you went down to the least and lowest place, that we might learn what that looks like in our lives and before others again. As we break bread and share the cup, as we, some of us, receive these signs and symbols of your death, Lord, may we yield in our hearts and minds and lives and spirits anew that we might know anew the power of your life within us. In your name we pray. Amen.